We confuse our smartphone with smart humans with wisdom. We confuse knowledge and wisdom, information and and wisdom. And so we've clearly progressed technologically in the last 2000 years. Whether we progressed morally since the time of the Greeks is, is questionable. Welcome to Insert Human. I'm Chris Colbert. As the former managing director of the Harvard Innovation Lab, I realized many things. And one of the things I realized is that the pace of technology driven change is faster, far faster, than most organizations and most people's ability to change. That gap equals risk, vulnerability, and eventually long-term viability. And it's a particularly troubling gap in the three sectors that underpin modern society, banking, education, and healthcare. It's the biggest existential threat they have, and by extension, we have. Closing the gap requires transformation. And transformation requires a much better understanding of ourselves, because at the end of the day, all transformation is human transformation. That's why I created Insert Human, a weekly conversation with brilliant people about better understanding us, and in doing so, shrinking the gap and increasing the chances of a better outcome for all. Before we dive in today's episode, an offer to all the listeners who are leading some sort of transformation effort. I've learned that the key to a successful transformation, organizations big or small, begins with adopting seven critical habits. And while most of the leaders I've met have nailed some, rarely have I seen any honed to an innate, really effective level. To find out how you're doing with the seven habits, you can get my guide The Seven Habits of Highly Transformative Leaders at chriscolbert.com. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to all the listeners around the world, which recent calculation has over 100,000 listens of the show. And that's particularly apropos to today because my guest today was on this podcast. He was number 12 of my guest interviews, and we're thrilled to have him back. Eric Weiner, who is a, if I may say, a human among humans. I'm a huge fan of this person. More functionally, he's an award-winning journalist, a best-selling multi-book author and a speaker. His books include The Geography of Bliss, I highly recommend, The Geography of Genius, I highly recommend, Man Seeks God, which profound experience in reading it. And then the latest title, which I think you had just published when you were on the show, was the Socrates Express. I'm pretty sure. Correct. Yes. Right? He's just a wonderful mind and a wonderful heart and a, obviously an incredible writer, By the way, he also has a writing workshop that will be happening in Bhutan, I believe, in the fall. Is that correct? In October. October. And I'm trying to convince the powers that be to uh, let me go (laughs) and uh, encourage others to look at that. They can find that on your website, I assume, Eric? You can. Absolutely. Great. So what precipitated me asking Eric back on the show? I mean, I'd, I'd like to have him on the show every week, frankly. He has a very powerful blog called The Atlas of Ideas. And a couple, three weeks ago, I think it was, I was reading his blog, which I do religiously. And there's this one post titled, Why This Is Happening in the 21st Century. And it's Eric's commentary on my view on a subject that is near and dear to me, which is this idea that somehow, some way we have allowed technology to what I call steamroll our humanity. And how is it possible with all the advances in technology 
all these terrible things are occurring, occurring, ranging from what's happening in the Ukraine to the epidemic of loneliness, and not just in the United States, in the Western world, there's a myriad of what I would call unintended consequences attached to the unleashing in part of technology. And, you know, why did that happen? And what exactly can we do about it? And that's what my view of his post was really all about. So I read it and I immediately emailed Eric and I'm like, we must talk about this on Insert Humans. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your work and for your willingness to be on the show. So I want to just start with your articulation of the problem part of what you wrote, you know, how you see the state of the world through this question of the role of technology. Well, first of all, thanks for having me back on, Chris, and congratulations on 100,000 downloads or listens or whatever. I can say I knew you back when. Um, so, I'm still, I'm still irrele- irrelevant, but just keep going. Okay. <laughs> but you're irrelevant with 100,000 people listening to your irrelevancy. Um, so that piece I wrote actually is my answer to a question posed by a young woman, a Ukrainian refugee who I saw on, on CNN, who was asking the reporter this question, who was interviewing her saying, how can this be happening in the 21st century? We have smartphones, we have electric cars, how can this be happening in the 21st century? And that just struck me as a common refrain I've heard from friends and people that this sort of cognitive dissonance between all this stuff we have around us, this technology, the advances in medicine and in other fields, and then this antediluvian show that's called The News, right. which involves pandemics and now war in Ukraine and and a war that just seems like something I would say out of the Middle Ages, but going back earlier than that, probably. So how can this be happening? And I think the answer to the question is it's happening because we are confused about a lot of things. What I find interesting in the world is not what is said, but what is unsaid. And what is unsaid, I think, is that we are confused about progress, about what it means, about what it looks like, about what form it takes, about its very importance. And people don't talk about progress because it's a given, right? That progress is good, that all progress is equally good, that it's always been good, and that we are progressing. These are sort of the unspoken Mm -hmm. assumptions. And if I can just insert quickly there a comment that I think for a large percentage of the world, progress has pretty much reduced down to economic products, progress, productivity, progress, gross domestic product, progress, and sort of the question of progress begins and ends there. Right. Because we can measure gross national product, right? right? It's an easy thing to measure. And that's why, uh, to put in a plug for Bhutan, the Himalayan country, you know, a couple of decades ago, developed this policy of gross national happiness as a way of, you know, it, it is a serious idea, but it's also a way of poking a finger in the eye of people who think that progress can only be measured in monetary terms and through GNP. So they're like, well, what about gross national happiness? Isn't that the whole point of progress? So if I could just step back and go back a few hundred thousand years briefly, um, for for 99% of human, well, this is, this is the human factor. So um, for 99% of human existence, we were hunter gatherers, right? And we did not quote unquote progress. It's really only in the last broadly 10,000 years, you know, since the agrarian revolution, 
that we have this broad definition of progress, but it's really only since the Enlightenment in the 18th century that progress has been seen as this immutable law like gravity, that progress is just built into who we are as humans, and it's the way the universe works, and it's it's a line, and it's, a, it's going straight up. And that's a, a fairly recent idea. So I think on a very basic level, I'd like to remind people that progress is an idea. Now, you may think it's a very good idea, but it is an idea, a human idea. It is not um, the same as gravity, which is a law of nature. So let's just start off with that. There's this idea called progress. And then what form does it take? And just my argument is that currently in our time and place in the universe, we define, view, conceive of progress almost exclusively in technological terms, technology and, and money. This is progress. So that young woman, Ukrainian woman's question, how can this be happening in the 21st century is her way of saying, we're supposed to be progressing. We've got all these gadgets and all this technology. How can we be killing each other in such a brutal way? And the answer is that we, we're confused. We confuse our smartphone with smart humans, with wisdom. We confuse knowledge and wisdom, information and, and wisdom. And so whether we've progressed, we've clearly progressed technologically in the last 2000 years, whether we progressed morally since the time of the Greeks is is questionable. Did you by any chance read Steven Pinker's Enlightenment now? I haven't read it, but I'm familiar with it. And I know he argues that, that the Enlightenment's good. And that in fact, the world is is a better place in terms of uh, killing fewer people and in, in, in lots of ways. And, and that is true. But I think that woman's question was germane. You know, yeah. how can this be happening in the 21st century? Yeah, I mean, in my re I did read it and, and throughout the book, I don't know if frustrated is the right word, but I was pondering his lack of consideration of the human dimension of our existence. I mean, yes, functionally, we are a more productive global society. Longevity has increased, you know, healthcare has improved, poverty has reduced in some parts of the world. But there was very little consideration about, call it the whole human view. And are we happier? Are we more content? Do we have we achieved greater well-being? Is there greater community? Is there greater human connection? And I think those are the measures that need to surround GDP. Yes, you need economic growth, but in and of itself, uh, I'm not sure it results in better, quote unquote, better lives. You know, Right. And there are unintended consequences of all this progress, mainly technological progress. 35,000 people dying each year in car accidents. That's a price we pay for the ability to zip around. And we don't, we don't think about it. We think that, you know, would you want to go back to just walking and riding your bike? No, you want to drive. And if people die in car accidents, they, that's a, a risk we're willing to accept. Right. Um, this greenhouse gas emissions also from automobiles. Um, Big food has given us big obesity, obesity and diabetes, which did not exist in any real sense in pre-industrial society. But, but the problem then becomes, you know, you start to sound like a Luddite and we start to sound like two old guys, um, you know, <laughs> which in my case is sort of true. yeah, pining for the, those days. You know, do you really want to give up all this stuff? And I feel that technological progress is in a way our modern day religion. And like all religions, it, it has its canon 
and you cannot question it. You know, if you begin to question technology, you're labeled a Luddite, which is the equivalent of calling someone a heretic. Right. And that ends the discussion very quickly. I mean, I've gone to the point where is there a brewing with all the divides in the world? Is there yet another divide between what I call the techno utopians or a friend of mine called the techno utopians and the humanists? Is that sort of a, the next generation of a division? Well, I've used that term too, techno utopians. And I think it is what's driving us. You know, I wrote this book, The Geography of Genius, where I looked at the appearance of genius throughout the ages. And um, there's a great quote I use actually as the epigraph to the book from Plato. He says, what's honored in a country is cultivated there. Honored in a country is cultivated there. Hmm. So, you know, in 18th century Vienna, they really honored music, classical music. And so they produced the Mozart. And, you know, in 15th, 16th century Florence, they honored great beauty and they produced uh, Michelangelo and Leonardo and others. And but look at our geniuses today, the people we hold up on the pedestal, the Elon Musks of the world and others, they're all in this technology sphere. And it's not that we don't have great you know, talented musical composers. We do. We just don't honor them. So we don't cultivate that. We don't pay attention to it. So it's the techno utopians like the Elon Musks of the world who we put up on the pedestal. And it says a lot about us that we, those people who find technological solutions to human problems are seen as these sort of living gods and, and we admire them and we pay them lots of money. And this may be a Luddite comment on my part, but in the case of Vienna and Florence or Italy more broadly, they were focused on honoring an end, a human end, you know, music or art, whereas technology in and of itself is not an end. It's a means to an end. And I think this goes back to your point about the lack of connectivity to a measure of human progress that is broader than economic progress is problematic because what has Mark Zuckerberg created really? What end has he achieved really through the, we call it the social network? And I think, I think that's part of the mess is we're honoring a function called technology that has ends that may or may not actually be helpful to the species. <laughs> right. And, and one of the biggest misperceptions about technology is that it's neutral. And I, I really think technology is not neutral at all. Every piece of technology has a bias and not a political bias, but a use bias. It's designed to be used in a certain way. You wouldn't really argue that a gun is a neutral technology. It's designed to do one thing. Now, social media like Facebook, Twitter, or your smartphone has biases too. They're just not as obvious. And, and the bias for my smartphone, which I'm staring at now, is to, well, to get me to stare at it, which it does very well. Um, it's <laughs> speed, portability, connectivity. These are things that we just assume are, are good. Faster downward rate is better than a slower one. That being more portable is better than not being portable. Take it with you everywhere you go. That connectivity is, by its essence, something good. That being more connected in a faster, more portable way is good. And that is debatable. You know, there's, there's such a thing as being overconnected. There's such a thing as moving too quickly. There's some such thing as, as having technology that is so portable, you're never free from it. Right. So every technology has a bias, but we look when immediately faced with the human problem, like the pandemic, like, uh, like war, the big ones, Right disease is we look to a technological solution. It never occurs to us that there might be a non-technological solution. I don't see how you could argue that technology 
is going to solve the problem of humans killing each other. If anything, it has only accelerated that problem and amplified it and done it, allowed us to kill each other on an industrial scale. So it hasn't always been this way. You know, the ancient Greeks, as I mentioned in my article, were not big on technology. They invented, I think, the water clock. I think, believe Plato invented that. But you don't see us, you know, using lots of ancient Greek technology. Um, <laughs> but when it comes to questions of wisdom and philosophy, um, they're just as relevant because wisdom, unlike technology, doesn't become obsolete. Right. One of the things I took from the piece you wrote and your comments thus far today is part of the quote unquote solution. If you accept that there's a problem, and I certainly accept that there's a problem, is this matter of better defining progress. And I, you know, I think you would agree that's got to be looked at through the lens of global. It can't just be America's version of progress versus Bhutan's version of progress, because so much of the actions we now take as a species are intertwined, interconnected. You know, the borders don't really aren't really borders anymore. I mean, do you agree that that's sort of a critical piece of if we were czars of the world, that maybe that's a bad reference. But if we were kings of the world or queens of the world, like is one of the first steps of this effort to collectively define the outcome that we're after for our species? I don't know if we, we need to do that. To counter what you said, you know, there is, of course, the notion that one crop economies don't do well. And there are benefits to having Bhutan do things their way and Costa Rica do things their way. And ideally, we all learn from each other. But unfortunately, at least in the political arena internationally, you see authoritarian regimes learning from each other in, in the worst way. So the term moral progress is not something you hear very often. You'll hear technological progress, scientific progress, economic progress. But again, I'm interested in what people are not talking about. And mm -hmm. I think it's very telling that you don't hear the term moral progress. It, it makes people uncomfortable. It sounds vaguely religious and maybe a bit preachy. Well, if I, if I, I mean, on, on matters of morality and ethics and integrity, I'm actually speaking on a panel on Thursday put on by a consortium of Stanford and a couple other organizations, Copenhagen FinTech Organization. And it's ostensibly about ethics and technology. And one of my points is going to be, we don't talk about ethics. I'm not even convinced 99% of people could define ethics. And to, even more radically, I've had people tell me that ethics are malleable, that they're, they're dependent on the moment in time, the age you are in. And I'm like, what? So that's like, that makes untruths okay in a world of of misinformation that now we have no ethical responsibility to be arbiters. Well, I mean, Chris, do you think there's such a thing as a moral truth? Yes, I do. And I, I actually believe integrity as a cousin of morality or superset or a subset are universal and, and not malleable. They are immutable. Like gravity or other law, the second law of thermodynamics. I know they're man-made, but I think as a, as a species, if we are willing to bend and twist and modify the foundation principles of our existence for political or economic gain, recognizing that those decisions will trample others in our quest for whatever, I think that's just like a slippery slope to hell. Right, right. <laughs> I, do, I really do. To go back to the 18th century, where a lot of these ideas came from, you know, they, people like John Locke and others looked at what Newton had done earlier and, you know, sort of defined these laws 
by which the universe operated. You know, it's not ancient history in the sense that we still very much believe there are laws, physical laws that affect what we do, um, affect the universe, rather. They affect, you know, you, you drop your smartphone and it's going to land on the floor because of gravity. And then John Locke said, well, can we find those same laws within human nature? Um, and his answer was basically yes, that there equally there are laws of human nature, you know, the golden rule, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Um, that was the one um, in my head too. <laughs> yes. And other, other laws that there, you know, we have free will so that we can act in contrary ways, contrary to these laws, but it will be harmful not only to others, but to ourselves. So the violent, selfish person is not going to just drop dead necessarily, but the idea here is that they're doing real harm to themselves. And in fact, the studies on happiness, for instance, show that, you know, some of the best ways to boost your happiness is to do something for someone else, right. to give money to someone else, to give them your time. That's going to boost your happiness as well. And someone like Locke would say, see, that's proof that there are these laws of human nature too. Uh, the difference is, unlike heavenly bodies revolving in the sky, we can either abide by these laws or, or not. And, you know, I don't know where technology enters into that, except that it is seen. This is what gets me is I have a lot of friends who are very skeptical, to put it mildly, about religion and, and spiritual life in general. And, and if you said to them, I have a new religion, do you want to hear about it? They'd be like, huh? You have a new religion? Like, that sounds crazy. You know, and no, I do not want to have anything to do with that. But I've got this new app. Do you want to check this out? Oh, a new app. <laughs> oh, right. Definitely check that out. Yeah. So we give technology a pass in a way that we don't when it comes to religion or when it comes to the subjects we're talking about now, like morality. We just automatically assume that technology is good, that something is that's new is automatically good. And that new technology, oh my God, that's the best. Right. And this idea of what I call the novelty fetish is also not a given. Not every culture, uh, the ancient Greeks were not necessarily enamored of everything that's new. Um, in Chinese culture, this is tradition of geniuses being ones who've imitated others and not necessarily produced something new. So, you know, new and improved. Um, well, is it really new? Right. Is it really improved? And does right. that, you know, I mean... Think about just the empty phrases and cliches in our culture, new and improved, the latest, the newest. And, yeah. and we assume that's always the the best. And that's that is an assumption. And I think I think implicit in that is what you said earlier about, and I wrote about this in my book. So much of technologies call it benefit. I'm not sure it is a benefit, is speed. And so the seduction of these new technologies, I think subconsciously, you say, hey, Chris, check out this new app subconsciously, I'm like, oh, that will make me even more productive or enable me to do more things or reduce the distance between where I am and what I want or whatever. But I think that's part of why we just subscribe without much, if any, consideration for what it really will do and what it might actually do to us. Right. Ask the average person is faster, better than slower. And they're just instinctively, you're going to say yes. Right. But is it? And if it's not, if faster is not always better, then why do we fixate and idolize these technological products that are all about speed? Again, that's their bias, speed, portability, and connectivity. Yeah. And we got to tease those out and say they're not 
necessarily good. And, and the challenge, I think, is having this discussion in a way that you're not, again, labeled a Luddite. Oh, so you went slower. You want to go back to the horse and buggy days? Right. And, you know, there was a, a great academic at New York University named Neil Postman. And he wrote a book, thin little book, which I really like, called Building a Bridge to the 18th Century. And he says there very simply that, yes, you know, if we repeat our past mistake, if we don't know our history, we're bound to repeat it, right? Which makes history sound all bad. But what we have to learn and repeat the things we did right as well. So to look back at the 18th century and say, well, they didn't have antibiotics, so therefore we have nothing to learn from them, I think is wrong. So we end up in this sort of constant futurism and presentism, that we we feel this is why I think Americans really don't have patience for history. Horse and buggies, no antibiotics, no technology. What can we possibly learn from these people? And I think that's a tremendous mistake. There's a great George Hagel quote, we learn from history that we do not learn from history. <laughs> right. But we, we need, yeah. We, so we repeat the bad stuff, but we don't learn the good stuff either. I think that's you know, there are all these little germs of good ideas. We need to like go dumpster diving in the in history and, and pull out the ones that never got a, a good airing. So I have to go back to your because I was just about to bring up the religion question vis-a-vis this matter of moral progress and ethics and integrity and humanity and whatever. And you know, it's hard not to correlate the decline, at least in the United States, the decline of religiosity with some of the sense of moral, the moral quicksand parts of our society seem to be standing on or drowning in. I don't know, but I'd love to know what you think about that correlation. Ooh, yeah, no, that's a really good question. We have seen a decline, I mean, in Western Europe precipitously in the last half century in religion people who lead religious lives. And now the U.S. has always lagged behind Europe in terms of this decline. And now we, we've caught up and you see it's a little tricky. You see people definitely, you know, attendance at church, synagogue, mosque is down. The large, single largest group when they do these surveys there's, are nuns, N-O-N-E-S, people who don't affiliate with any religious uh, denomination but they don't necessarily consider themselves atheists too. They're not quite willing to to make that leap. I mean, I think there's a, a reason that religion has been around for almost as long as humans have been around and that it provides us with meaning and structure in our lives and some guidance. And I'll just put it this way. Obviously, there's a lot bad about religion and many wars have been fought in, in, its, in God's name, but it's left sort of this gaping hole, you know, in terms of knowing what's wrong and what's right and talking about moral progress. And we turn to gurus, modern day gurus, the Oprah's of the world for guidance. We turn to social science studies, show this studies show that we, and, and that certainly has a role. You look at the movement of positive psychology, that's sort of filling in the gaps, bits and pieces. And we turn to technology to give us meaning. And, you know, your smartphone would do lots of wonderful things. It can give you so much information. It can navigate you from here to there, but it can't tell you where to go. It can tell you how to get there, but it's not like, well, should I go visit Dave who's got lung cancer today or should I go to the beach? You know, yeah. Siri, Siri's not going to help you with that one. So yeah, I, I think there is still a place for religious life. And I'd love to see, we've talked about this before, philosophy fill that that void as well. Because there is a hunger out there for for wisdom. And look, I don't care if you 
get it at um, church or you get it at a Socrates cafe where people get together and talk about philosophy or in a chat. But I mean, people are hungry for meaning and they're not finding it in technology. Yeah. And I I think that's true. And I I worry a little, not worry, it's too strong a word. I wonder a little bit about, again, I'm not a religious person, never been a religious person, but what you said about the role of religion in terms of providing structure and a belief system, that there's value to that. And I think the value of it in part is it reinforces in a proactive way some fundamental things. Yeah, so it, it's useful, I think, is what you're saying. It's um, useful. I mean, we, William James famously said, truth is what works. And by that, he didn't mean two plus two equals five. That works for me, right? And in this age of alternative facts, people get very concerned about statements like truth is what works. But to give an example, we were talking before about your exercise regime. And so you're you're a runner, elliptical person. Mm-hmm. What's your okay? I, I, I've been an avid runner. I basically do anything I can to figure out a way to sweat. Okay. So <laughs> interrogation in police stations, for instance. <laughs> that's, that one my, that's one of my favorites. <laughs> yeah, that really lose 10 pounds each time. Caught for shot, caught shoplifting. Um, so let's say you read up about the health benefits of running. And so then you, you go running and you're going to run five miles every day. Now, let's say the other version of Chris doesn't read anything about the health benefits of running, just sort of heard that it might be good and runs five miles a day. Truth is what works. Running is good for you. And you don't need to know the theory behind it to benefit from it. And I think that's what William James was getting at, because he wrote famously the varieties of religious experience. If you pray and that work that makes you a better person, I don't care whether you're praying to an invisible man in the sky who's all made up or whatever. It, it makes you a better person, makes you a, a more loving person. I would say then your prayer is truthful. It's true in, in the sense that William James means it. And I think we live in an odd time where we have an excess of subjectivity. Everyone's got their opinion. Everyone's an armchair expert. But also people don't trust their own internal experiences, um, a sort of absence of subjective truths. We, we, we get so much information about this study, mm. that opinion. I don't think people really know, stop and listen to their own inner voice very often because we're drowned out by so many other voices. Maybe this is getting off track. Well, no, no, no. I, th- I, I, love, I love everything that you've been saying. I, I mean, I think... One of the things I wrote about when COVID first began quarantining us, I wrote a piece and I did a podcast titled From Pull to Push. And the whole idea was all of a sudden the noise stopped. All of a sudden the pull of work and society and seduction and all that stuff just, you know, we were we were stuck at home. And all of a sudden we did have a quietude and an opportunity to ponder some things, including who we are, how we want to be, what we want to do. And there's a profundity in that, in that quiet, you know, and I, and this kind of goes back to technology coming out of COVID. It's that noise is cranking up again. And <laughs> I mean, I had a lot of people in my circle, uh, professional and personal say, I don't want to go back to the way it was. I want to find some happy medium where I have, I have better balance. I have, you know, an equilibrium between maybe the way I want to be and the way society is 
telling me I need to be or something. So I, I think it's actually very salient to what. We're- yeah. So in, in the science of happiness, and this is psychologist sort of after a hundred years of studying sick and diseased minds decided, Hey, let's see what, what makes people happy. And, and let's study people who seem to be happy. But the latest turn that this science has taken is away from happiness per se, which in our modern parlance tends to mean pleasure. We tend to equate happiness with pleasure uh, to this, these theories of flourishing and leading a meaningful life. And in a way, this is just going full circle back to uh, the ancient Greeks who talked about eudaimonia, which is a mouthful. Eudaimonia? Yes. Well, it is a mouthful. Well, it is, but it's often translated as happiness. But when the Greeks talked about eudaimonia, they meant a flourishing life, a meaningful life. And we don't really even have a word for that concept of you're happy and flourishing, self-actualized, um, all these things. So there's a thought experiment that the philosopher Robert Nozick came up with, which I think is very telling. So if you... Um, you sit back and you close your eyes. Can you close your eyes, Chris? Okay. For listeners at home, trust me that his eyes are closed. <laughs> They've been closed the whole time. Okay. Right, here you go. <laughs> now picture there's this experience machine that you can be hooked up to. Uh, it's FDA approved, but it's, it's safe anyway. Don't worry. And you hook yourself up to it and you're lying down and it just fills you with happiness for the rest of your life. You can't get up, but you're experiencing happiness, pure happiness. Do you want to be hooked up to the machine forever? It's a yes or no question. No. Yeah. And most people say no, but we say we just want to be happy. And I think it's a very telling thought experiment because it sort of reveals that we don't just want to be happy. We want to you know, earn it. We want to have some grit and, and even suffering in our lives. Um, we want to be useful to others. And the problem with the experience machine is you're not, you're right. not, you know, you may be experiencing happiness, but what are you doing for other people? Right. It's, it's this idea of usefulness. Usefulness gets short shrift. Um, I think people have a desire to be useful in religion. We were talking about religion, religion at its best taps into that usefulness impulse and gives people a way to be useful. Oh, the church is having a bake sale for to raise, raise money for refugees or whatever it is. It organizes that usefulness energy. You know, and I think we, I, I'm thinking of a dear, dear friend of mine who was a founder and, and CEO of a, a very large agency here in Boston called Arnold. And his name was Arnold. And he was such a profound guy. And he, he retired at 68 or something. And, uh, and he, we were very close. And he I saw him lose his usefulness, not in his capacity in how the market treated him because he was retired and or 68. And I think our society, U.S. society, particularly uh, usefulness is attached to often to age. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in a way, as you it's sort of double edged sword in a way, as you get older, you are have fewer means to be useful, like your friend, if he defines his usefulness as earning money for his firm, then yes, he becomes less useful. But I, I find that as I get older, I, I start to begin sentences with the phrase, as I get older. Um, and uh, I, when I was young, I always wondered, like, I was trying to be a foreign correspondent. I really wanted to go overseas. And I would meet these older, you know, veteran foreign correspondents. And they, they help. I told them, I want to go overseas. I want to be a foreign. This is my dream. And they would help me. And if you're a sort of an Ayn Rand kind of person, we say they're helping you because they you know that 
you'll become big and then there'll be payback or whatever. And now that I'm older and I find young people coming to me, they want to be a journalist or they want to be a writer. I, I help them. And why I do it, not because there's going to be any payback. There's, there's not. And even if there is, that's not my impulse. It's this desire to be useful. Like I know that I can make a phone call to a publisher or an agent and help them get a foot in the door. And it feels good because you're, yes, you're being helpful, but on a more basic level, you're being useful. So as you get older, you do, yeah, you do have more, If assuming that you have enough of a nest egg and enough accumulated enough success and connections in the world, you can deploy those. You just sort of have to redefine your usefulness. If it's just productivity, like your friend and sort of in a very gross base level, you know, dollars produced, then yes, he's less useful, but it's helping some young person who wants a career like he had, he could be just as useful, if not more. Yeah. yeah. I'm mindful of the time. I wanted to go back to the the post that you wrote and specifically your reference to how do we respond to this dynamic and the importance of human, uh, more of us taking agency and owning or accepting accountability for how we're living, how we're doing what we do. I'd lo- just love you just to riff on that a little bit in terms of a, a way to wrap this up. Where are we in the answer part of this of this question? You mean, how, how can this happen in the 21st century? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think the answer in short is we are paying attention to the wrong things. All of this energy that goes into a new app, a new social media platform, even to some extent, you know, genuine technological advances like electric cars, all of that energy could be better used if it was directed toward moral progress, toward things that are less easily measured, but actually matter more. Our happiness, um, the well-being of others, how we treat people, um, looking to someone like Gandhi and his theories of nonviolent resistance which doesn't involve technology at all. And there's no app for it, but it's very powerful. And I would argue, I'm a big fan of Gandhi, that his method of nonviolent resistance is a classic example of moral progress, not a technology, not a gadget, not something you're going to make lots of money over, um, not something that's going to wow your friends, not something that's fast and snazzy, but it's a, a new idea of how to resist an immoral leadership. In his case, it was the British Raj, but it could be anything. And that, you know, I, I would love to see that celebrated more. Just I just bring it right back to Plato. We could have just read Plato's quote and then had an hour of silent contemplation of it. Or gone running. What is honored is a, in a country is cultivated there. So look what we cultivate, look at what we honor and ask yourself, hmm, could we honor something different? And I think if we start with that, good things will happen. I totally so agree. And I have to say, as you were talking, I was going through the list of global leaders, of of national leaders, of local leaders, and asking myself, do any of them represent or declare this as an essential path, an essential point, an essential thing to celebrate? And I, I couldn't come up with any. I mean, how do we move in this direction absent leadership? I mean, it's, it's the old Lincoln's old better angels idea, right? So you, what you seem to be saying, Chris, is that leadership matters and that we've got better angels and worse angels and the leaders either bring out the, the good angels or the... Well, well, I think what I'm saying is I think individual agency 
you know, I don't think any of us need to be told what to do every day in order to do the right thing. I, I think that's silly. At the same time, I know humans, myself, well enough to know that reinforcement helps, that messaging from quote unquote above, whoever the above is, uh, what, and it goes back to the religion con- question, you know, that the reinforcement of, of religious systems can be helpful to keeping people motivated, keep people clear on the quote unquote on the path. So as I examine the leadership of the world, again, through governing organizations, through a range of facets, there seem to be a paucity of voice, a lack of voice. Yeah, we have celebrities, as we know, in the world, but maybe we need more moral celebrities. Um, Someone like Desmond Tutu and Nelson Mandela in, in South Africa have passed away, but were good examples of moral celebrities, people that everyone, pretty much no matter their political persuasion, looked up to them and honored them. And I feel like that generation, uh, we still have the Dalai Lama, thank God, and other a few others, but I feel like we don't really have those moral celebrities. Mm. Um, and they could be in government or out of government, but you know, people we look up to and say, that, now there's a good person. I mean, yeah, we have the Mark Zuckerbergs and the Elon Musks of the world, and we certainly honor them, but do we look up to them in the same way we looked up to a Mandela? And are, are they worthy of our admiration? Eric, I think you should run for president. 2024, Eric Weiner. There you go. Independent. <laughs> you want to join my ticket? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, two, I mean, I mean, two I old balding guys. That's a that's a winning <laughs> ticket. Let me tell you. <laughs> that's. I mean, I could just see the, the, the test marketing. See how that flies. Yeah, not well. Um, I, again, I just it's about changing the the conversation. And I, I do think it's important to, I'm not running for president, but to, to look at what are we not talking about? It's easy to, to watch the cable news, even to read the newspapers, but what's not being uh, discussed? Hopefully we've talked about things that are, that are not being talked about in this past hour. And um, I had an editor, a reporter for a couple of years at the New York Times, and he would always, he'd read through my story and he would fix the typos maybe, or tighten a sentence. He would cut stuff, definitely cut. And then when he was all done, he would step back from the screen and ask aloud, okay, now what's missing here? What is not on the page? And we have trouble uh, envisioning what's not on the page. So let me, let me ask one last quick thing. I'd like to end each show with one thing the listeners might want to ponder, might want to do. Is, is it to start exploring what's not being talked about? Is that your call to action for the audience or what might you encourage them to? Well, I mean, I, I would say when, when you're tempted the next time you have a problem to reach for a piece of technology to solve the problem, whether it's making up a cup of coffee or Googling information, or there's a dispute between your, your supervisor and there's a dispute between two of your workers, just stop and ask yourself, is there a solution here that does not involve technology? Mm. To just sort of to pause, I would say, um, Socrates was a big fan of pausing, basically, and questioning your assumptions. So try to create little pauses in your life when you're about to reach for, since we've been talking about technology as sort of our go-to reflex when faced with the problem is, what's the technological solution? Is to pause for a moment, and just think, is there some, some idea, 
some con- some behavior, something that does not involve technology that might that might solve this problem. And and that involves first pausing before you reach for the tech. And I love that. And I give you my personal example. Last Saturday, we're repainting our our bedroom, and I had this choice of ordering some stuff on. Amazon that we needed supplies, whatever, or getting on my bike and riding cross town to a hardware store. And I did the latter. And, you know, in support of the hardware store, I, I'm getting to know the proprietor, the owner. And it may have cost you more money and more it, time. I know it did. I know it cost right. me like 25% more probably, but not if you factor in climate impact. <laughs> um, but it was a, a meaningful, and I'm not painting myself as, as anything other than I think that the, there are a lot of those opportunities on a daily basis to just. Yeah. And, and, and that's great that you did that. But to say you did it to help the environment, oh, that's OK. But you did it to help Chris, you know, right. that you. Right. This is enlightened self-interest, you know, that right. you felt better probably after doing this. You um, you had a real connection with a human being as opposed to a email or online connection. You you exercised, you slowed yourself down. You know, all these things don't normally factor into our calculus because our calculus is skewed toward more is better, faster is better, and more is not always better, faster is not always better, cheaper is not always better, uh, all these things. Yeah, yeah. So, so well said. You, I mean, you're always so well-spoken, and I so Thank appreciate you. your thought and how you articulate it in both the written word and the verbal word. For the audience, again, Eric has multiple books out there, The Geography of Bliss, The Geography of Genius, Man Seeks God, and his latest is The Socrates Express. And also, I encourage you to follow him, uh, the blog, which is uh, The Atlas of Ideas. I, lo- I love all of the above. And and I've got some some news is my first book, The Geography of Bliss, is being turned into a TV show. Um, Whoa. Starring Rain Wilson uh, of The Office oh fame. It'll be on NBC Peacock. They start shooting next week. <laughs> And it'll be a, a docu-series. That's a term, apparently. And that's exciting. So hopefully. Congratulations. Thank you. That is you. huge. Uh, it's taken years <laughs> to make this happen. But Rain is great. He's going to do a great job. Um, he's basically going to be me. Nobody can be you, man. <laughs> no, he's he's me, but more famous. <laughs> so I think it makes sense. So that'll your, be out. What does your year. wife think about that? His 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 casting be, being cast. Sure, she's she'd like to have him around more often. I think. <laughs> so there we go. <clears throat> does he talk about stuff like this? Because I don't want him around if that's not the case. No, he's actually got a philosophical streak, and you know, like most funny people and comedians, he's got a dark side too. So he's kind of the perfect person for this project. So perfect. perfect. Um, so that will be out next year. Okay. Well, thank you for being you. Thank you for. Again, the thinking that you do, the work that you do, the the helping, you are a very useful human being to me. And thank you for being so damn human yourself. Thanks for listening today. Wherever you are as a leader on your transformation journey, you'll find more helpful resources at chriscolbert.com. From more podcast episodes and my film talks from around the globe to my blog and books. And if you're a CEO or leader interested in getting my advice, you can reach me there too. Just head over to chriscolbert.com. Thanks for listening.